I've told you before that one day George Bush Sr. stopped by a nursing home in North Carolina. He was campaigning for president at the time. He leaned over an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair with a handshake, and he said, sir, do you know who I am? And the man replied, no, but if you go to the nurse's station, they can tell you. <laughs> Who are we? Good question. The Bible tells us we get our best answer in worship. In fact, uh, as we continue reading Paul's letter to the Romans, we come today to two texts that uh, both make the point that worship shapes our thinking. Paul's going to take 11 chapters to tell us how God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. This is what we call the good news. But he's got a bookend on either side, a bookend on worship. Because, hear this, no matter how good the good news is, it's not good news to us if it doesn't shape our thinking. And that's what worship should do. So let's look at these texts together. Uh, the first is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 24 on page 914 of the Pew Bible. And I'd like to read this uh, one for us, so you can remain seating as I... As I read Romans chapter 1, 16 to 24, just kind of getting into it here, Apostle Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he's made. So they're without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love that how he kind of worships right there at the end. He speaks of the name of God, he says amen. Now, the second text is Romans 12, verses one through two, and I would like you to read this with me, so please uh, turn to Romans 12, one and two, and you find that on page 922 of the Pew Bible, and if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this all together as an act of, of worship. Uh, a confession of faith, if you will, and an invitation to which we will say yes. As I'm done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, but which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. So I wanna pick up uh, where we left off last week. Remember, David Brooks tells us that culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. But you could ask the question, well, where would a small group of people find a better way to live? And Paul's answer seems to be here in in, in these two texts, worship, doesn't it? In worship, be transformed by the renewing of your minds in worship. Worship shapes thinking. Remember the letter to the Romans uh, was read out loud in worship. Uh, The church gathered in homes in the city of Rome. There was many as five or more house churches in the city, little communities of 30 to 40, maybe 50 people crammed into a house, gathered to worship Jesus. Phoebe would have read the letter. She's the leader who carries the letter for Paul from Greece to Rome. Phoebe would blush appropriately when she gets to chapter 16 and read what Paul's written about her. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon or, uh, or a minister, literally, a minister of the church at Centuria, which is near Corinth. She has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. She was a woman of great importance to Paul and the church. Phoebe would read, and like the synagogue practice we see in Nehemiah 8, she would explain the letter, and so everybody could understand. Now, last week, I introduced you four characters. They weren't actually in Rome, but they were just like the people who were. We met Iris the barmaid, uh, a slave girl who cleaned the bar, served patrons, and was sexually abused by them. These were people who lived in Pompeii, remember? If you, by the way, if you didn't hear the message last week, you might wanna go back and, 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 and uh, take another run at it. Next door, Iris, the barmaid in this one city block in Pompeii, uh, there was a man named Primus, the slave. He was a bath stoker in the mansion of an elite. Next door to Primus was Sabina, the stoneworker who barely made ends meet uh, together with her husband. And next door to them was Hulconius, the cabinet maker, who rented a house which was large enough where they might have actually gathered with the others if they had constituted an actual house church there in Pompeii. What we see in these four characters is that none of them would be a stranger to worship. Uh, Graffiti, for example, is on the wall in Iris's bar. She's the barmaid, and it declares the bar to be, quote, the chapel of Bacchus, was the god of wine and the patron deity of uh, partiers everywhere. Maybe she honors this god for a quick fix to the, numb the pain of her life, or maybe she hates him for causing the pain, Bacchus. Either way, she lives in the world of Bacchus, and the worship in that world shapes the way she thinks and the possibilities of her life. A Primus lives in the world of political power, uh, remember, he's the slave in this largest of houses in that block, it takes up the whole block. It was likely the summer mansion of a senator. Take a pinch of incense and throw it on Caesar's fire. A body found in one of the rooms, thought to be the steward of the house, wore a seal belonging to the family of one of Nero's wives. Wow, when your steward is related to the wife of 
the Caesar, that's a place that worships political power. Not that Primus himself had any, but he was sustained by it. He lived in a world shaped by the worship of power. Next door, Sabina. Uh, she lived in a world of uh, domestic welfare. E even in Sabina's house, living at almost subsistence level, it's as spare as it could be, but we see here our signs of worship. On the right-hand wall, as you come in through that wide door, we find uh, what's called a lorarium, a lorarium. It's a small shelf carved into the wall for paintings or stone images of guardian deities invoked for protection, protection of the family and the welfare of the home. Because when it becomes to the most important thing in our lives, even family can become an idol. And nothing hurts a child more than turning them into a minor deity. And Hulkanius, uh, the cabinet maker, he encounters worship at work every day. Most craftspeople would be members of a trade association or a collegia, as they were called, part trade association, part social clubs. It's where Hulkanius would meet vendors, customers, co-workers, and worship was just part of the deal every day. The communal meal always began with a token sacrifice to the patron deity, the sustainer of the trade. So there she is, Phoebe, reading the letter to the people in the room, uh, just like this, and comes to worship here in, in chapter one. And there's really nothing very surprising for the folks who are here at this point. Nothing surprising in the suggestion that everyone worships. It's not a religious thing. It's a human thing. We all worship. Worship is your response to whatever you put first in your life. Worship is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. And we all do it, whether we know it or not. We all have an ultimate concern, a driving force, a greatest good. The question isn't whether we worship, but what or who. It might be Bacchus or Nike, or in more modern terms, the gods of Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche, money, sex, and power or anything else that we come to believe we just couldn't live without. No, the people in this room are not surprised to hear Paul write about worship. Just look at the frescoes on the wall around them. And to them, there's nothing surprising in the suggestion Paul seems to be making here that somehow the story of human history can be told as a story of worship, what we refuse to worship and what we choose to worship. The Jews in the room immediately think of Psalm 115, uh, that idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, and that, quote, those who make them become like them, close quote. There's nothing surprising in the suggestion that worship shapes thinking. But as Phoebe looks around the room, she has to smile because there is something surprising here. She can see it in their faces. There's something better to worship. Something that shapes better thinking, that renews our minds, transforms our lives, that instigates culture and points to a whole new world. The people in this house are not worshiping the things that are worshiped in the worlds from which they come. They're just like the characters 
from Pompeii, Iris, Primus, Sabina, and Hulcanius. They're people who go to parties. They serve in corridors of political power. They live in families, and they work their careers, but they all do that differently because they know that in their proper place, these are all good things. But they also know in first place, any of these things is enough to destroy your life. Paul's words come to Phoebe's lips. And she reads them in this moment as though they were her very own. She reads Paul's words as God's word. And the secret and the testimony of her own life. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who has faith. And around the room... They nod. They nod. This is worship. Yes, I'm not ashamed either. Yes, I'm not ashamed. I'm grateful. Yes. By the way, these were joyful gatherings, these house churches. Acts 2, 42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The Corinthian correspondence tells us they gave generously, quote, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever extra you earn. And God loves a cheerful giver. Colossians 3.16 tells us they studied and sang. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Yes, they say. Yes, this is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is in first place. Jesus is in this place, and it's good news. Imagine it. Use your imagination. That's what they're doing. It's a collective exercise of joyful reimagination refurbishing minds, otherwise truncated and denuded in the temples of lesser gods, gods who demand our whole lives in exchange for sustenance and ultimately offer nothing but smoke and mirage. See now Jesus. See now in Jesus a world in which truth and love and justice and beauty and grace and redemption are not just words, but the deeper facts of reality itself. Salvation, the healing of the world. Life that is born out of death. Wisdom in the foolishness of the cross. Strength in the struggle of weakness. Family where there was enmity. Reconciliation. Jesus overcoming what disconnects us. Good news. Yes, they say, yes. No, there is a surprise here. Something deeply new and original is erupting right here in this room in worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The renewing of your minds. A new way of thinking. And let me add one more character to that room, if I may, this morning. Me. Your pastor. I have an experience of surprise almost every Sunday now when I join you in worship. I sit right here in the front row with you, and almost every Sunday there's a surprise for me. Which is really strange because you have no idea how much uh, work goes into planning every inch of these services. But it actually, in my case, that's part of the problem. 
I've told you before how often I get these writer's blocks around my sermon. There's really something there for me almost every week, a brick wall. I get so filled with anxiety. Feels to me like the world's going to end. Ask my wife, she's here. <laughs> I find myself filled with doubts. I find myself questioning the gifts that I have for ministry, the power of God's word, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I'm embarrassed to say, in yours. I find my identity so wrapped up in the task, I get overwhelmed with alternating feelings of pride and shame. And then on top of that, I bring two armfuls of life challenges any given week. A less than perfect marriage, stress at work, financial concerns, and loved ones who are sick. And I don't even know what I'm thinking. But it's somewhere on the spectrum between what in the world have I done and what in the world could I do? That's my world. In AA, they call it stinking thinking. <laughs> and then something happens. Then the surprise. I'm singing the songs and listening to the prayers. I'm aware of you singing and reading and praying behind me or in front of me. And then there's a shift. And I don't know what triggers it. Maybe a bit of music this morning. It was the words we just heard the choir sing. Maybe a phrase or a thought. But something happens in my head. There's a reframe. I came thinking that it was all about me, that I was alone to make it work, that my circumstances are in my hands, but then I realized, not true, none of it. I realized that I'm in his hands, that we all are, that the world is, that there's something bigger, greater, someone, and the world is still very much the object of that someone's love. There's a bigger story here. There's a more beautiful story here. And you and I and this moment are part of it. That's the reframe. Worship shapes my thinking. And it's really the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You know that. Using worship to give me an experience of reconciliation. Let me use the words of a great theologian, Tom Torrance. Here's what he writes. In worship... Dr. Torrance writes, reconciliation encounters me, telling me that I am already reconciled to God in Christ, already died for, redeemed, and forgiven. It tells me that already the great positive decision of God's reconciling love in my favor has been taken, and it can no more be undone than Jesus Christ can be undone then the incarnation can be reversed or obliterated or the cross made as if it had never taken place. Reconciliation tells me, therefore, that my life has already been set upon the new basis of God's grace, that I am implicated in it and involved in it for the sole reason that I am a sinner. It was sinners that Christ Jesus came to live and die for, sinners that he came to reconcile to the Father, and the very fact that I am a sinner, so to say, is, so to say, my title and right to reconciliation. Nay, the indication that I am already included in the finished work and already a part of Christ, for it was my nature, my humanity, my flesh of sin that he assumed and made one with himself in his one person. Close quote. And in that moment, I say, yes, yes, that's the truth, the truth about God and the truth about me. And you, he's our ultimate good. If only for a moment my thinking is changed 
my mind is renewed. I just want to hold on to that. God shapes my thinking, and God does it here with you in worship. So what does that mean for us? Let me draw out three quick implications, three invitations, because there's some very practical thinking here that the Apostle Paul gives us. Three things. First is bring bodies. To get this gift, we've got to bring our bodies to worship. Remember, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is important, we tend to miss it. Years before podcasts, even the printing press, Paul stresses that worship is an embodied event. And it's something we do together in time and space. We enact it physically. I know you've got a lot of good ways to engage with the good news, and you should use them all, I do. But as the center of gravity moves from our church campus more and more into the neighborhoods of Seattle, it's gonna become even more critical, imperative even, that we gather together here on Sunday. This is base camp. It's where we fuel up for the adventure with Jesus. I think of it like Grampy's house, if you'll pardon this. I never lived in Maine, but my grandfather, Grampy, lived in Maine. We went as often as we could. We'd sit around Grampy's table and tell stories. We'd eat Italian sandwiches, talk about his friends who had names like Quimby and Donatelli, and wonder if they really existed anywhere, and we would laugh. As soon as Ann and I got serious about dating, it was the first place I wanted to take her, Grampy's house, because Grampy's house was the place I remembered who I was, and I wanted her to know, see. And I wanna suggest that's what happens here on Sunday. This, this is our kitchen. We need to bring our bodies here every week to worship, to remind ourselves who God is, who we are, to tell the great story, to renew our minds for our mission in the neighborhoods. Bring bodies, see. By the way, if you're here today, you nailed this one. Good job, good job. You're off to a great, this is gonna be a great week for you. If you're streaming, uh, nail it next week, okay? We'll look forward to seeing you there. Number two, think thankful. Bring bodies, think thankful. The biggest cause of stinking thinking is ingratitude. That's the Bible speaking. Listen to this, Romans 1.21 tells us they became futile in their thinking and, the, and their senseless minds were darkened. Why? Because, here's what Paul says, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Think thankful. Would you just think about that for a second? Though they knew God, they did not give thanks to him and they became futile in their thinking. Means their thinking became a waste of time, unhelpful at best. I remember a student who came to know Jesus through our ministry in Prague years ago. Raised to be an atheist, she said, often I feel thankful for life, but I have no idea whom to thank. What are you thankful for today? Do you tell God? Can you tell him right now? You tell others. There's a reason we call the meal we're about to share the Eucharist. That's the Greek word, Eucharisto, uh, for thanksgiving. No matter how hard my circumstances, this table reminds me there's always something I can be thankful for. Remember my pledge to become Mr. Positive? Some of you have heard me talk about I wanna become, I wanna be known as Mr. Positive. I, have, I know I have a lot of work to do, but this is the work, the work of gratitude. And worship is the driver. Think thankful. 
Finally, number three, progress patiently. The biggest reason we have to be told to love God and to love our neighbors is just that we don't, all right? Not at first, let's be honest. Wouldn't be a commandment if we did, it'd be a fact. See, there's that moment in worship where I think I can see clearly and it's beautiful and I do love God and neighbor, but it's just a moment. And the trick is to hold on to that reframe long enough for the new mindset to survive the ride home. Uh, the assault on Monday, the encounter with my actual neighbor who doesn't seem to ever know that I'm late for something. The goal is to cement the reframe, to remap the neural pathways, live the reframe, but that takes time and repetition and habituation. So keep coming back every week and be patient. We're going to fail and that's okay because of the mercies of God, as Paul calls them. Let's be honest. Reconciliation is really hard work. There's a reason it hasn't happened in our neighborhoods yet. And if we're gonna do that work, we're going to be uncomfortable, have hard conversations, confront our own biases, get bruised, angry, and exhausted. So we need patience and long-term commitment and a regular practice of corporate worship that brings us back here again and again and again to the story of our own reconciliation in Jesus Christ and the reconciliation of the world. Progress patiently. God wants to shape your thinking, to reshape it, and to do it in worship. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That will change culture. That's what we're after in our neighborhoods, small groups of people who find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. Do you know who you are? I hope so. You can go to the nurse's station if you want, they'll tell you there. <laughs> but I suggest you keep doing what you did today, that you come right here in worship to this table as Augustine says, there you are on the table in the bread. There you are in the chalice. For he has given his life for yours. And these are signs of reconciliation, wounds that heal, tokens of deep love, and an invitation to come. Present your body to him as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. God, we say as best we know how where we are at this point in the journey to that invitation, yes. We're here to pray, if nothing else, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. <laughs> Thank you for this gift of your Holy Spirit who brings us here, who meets us here who draws us up into the grand drama of Jesus Christ. And thank you for one another, the person, we might not even know them, but they're here and they're a witness to us on our right, on our left, in front and behind. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. We pray that you'll help us to hold on to the reframe of this moment and live it in the world. In Christ's name, amen.